Everybody has an opinion. Most people have an opinion about everything. You know, the old saying goes, everybody has an opinion. It's just like noses. If you have a nose, you have an opinion. Even Voldemort, who doesn't have a nose, had opinions about stuff. Sometimes he had really strong opinions. You know, he really didn't like muggles. Um, when it comes to matters of faith, everyone has some opinions too. They have opinions about things. Uh, the famous joke in seminary was, you want to destroy your church? Just get them to agree on a carpet color. Like, you get everybody saying, no, it should be blue, it should be red. Have you ever walked into a church and you're like, who picked this carpet color? Probably the people in the church. They couldn't agree, and so they picked the color that nobody wanted, you know? And that's why it's that terrible orange. Um, after eight years of pastoring, both here and in Tennessee, and during my years of leading small groups, uh, before that, I've found that most people prefer to talk about their opinions of faith rather than about the core messages of faith. Uh, when I was in seminary, I would each week meet with a group of 20-something guys at a local Starbucks, and we'd discuss those really important transformational topics like, could the creatures in Genesis 6 be aliens? Could Ezekiel 1 describe a UFO? Are there unicorns in the Bible? Who's the Antichrist? Is there a hidden code in the Bible? Is China Gog and Russia Magog mentioned in connection with the end times? We talk about these really important things that made us better young men, you know? Um, and we would sit around and drink coffee, and as the seminary student, I thought I knew more than all of them, and I would weigh in, and I loved it, and it didn't make me a better human being. It didn't make me love anybody but I had a lot of opinions and spent a lot of hours talking about my opinions. We were fascinated by the conspiracy theories of scripture because we could talk about faith without having to change anything about ourselves. We could talk about spiritual sounding things without actually having to be spiritual. We preferred these topics instead of love your neighbor because it's always easier to impose my imagination on the text than it is to impose the authority of the text on my life. Now, many of you at different times have asked me about the end times or the antichrist, and you've likely been disappointed when I'm noncommittal or even dismissive in my answers. And I've run down the rabbit hole on all these ideas and more, and I found something out. None of these beliefs transform me into the image of Jesus. Now, I have an opinion about all these things, right? But I wanna fixate on Jesus. They can be interesting things to talk about, but we must deconstruct our opinions that distract us from discipleship to Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about deconstructing our faith, disentangling man's opinions from God's truth. And today we're going to talk about our natural tendency to gravitate to the things we want to hear instead of the things we need to hear. We like to talk about the things that aren't going to impact us or change us or mess with the things that we have or like. We must recognize that our human tendency is to believe the things we like the sound of rather than the things that are true. We prefer a pleasant sounding lie to an uncomfortable truth. We prefer a provocative speculation to a practical spiritual discipline. It's easier to talk about things that might be instead of talking about something that we should be doing. Today I want to talk about deconstructing the opinions of our faith that we automatically have. Sometimes we're just like, oh, this is what I think it is. 
um, and the ones we've picked up along the way where someone has told us something and we're like, oh, yeah, that's probably true. At face value, we can't always recognize the difference between a core Christian belief that's essential to our faith and some opinion that someone passed around as Christian principle. I've known Christians with uh, opinions about drinking, opinions about tattoos, opinions about gambling, opinions about playing cards. I was uh, once almost kicked out of a church in Tennessee for playing cards in a back room because you don't play cards in a church. What were you thinking? Those cards can be used for gambling. I'm like, we were playing, you know, like Uno or not Uno, obviously, that's a different deck of cards. We were playing like Go Fish or it was some pointless game we were playing as teenagers. But man, you would have thought that I just brought a devil into that church, you know, playing with some playing cards. Um, there, I know Christians who have opinions about how you dress, how long your hair is, what music you listen to. Then there are opinions on practicing the faith itself, opinions about liturgy and music and ambiance. And this is where I think this quote that has floated around Christianity for hundreds of years can be helpful. Rupertus Maudenius said, in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty in all things charity. Now, I think we have a uh, historically accurate picture of Maudenius up here. Um, that's not him, actually. But doesn't his name sound like a Harry Potter wizard? It really does. Rupertus Maudenius? I, you should go look up a real picture of him. Google him after the service or right now. I don't care. He looks like a wizard. But I thought this picture made a bigger, bigger impact, so we went with that. There's a lot of Harry Potter references today. I don't know. Maybe I haven't watched the movies for a while, and I need to. Um, but I think Modenius correctly recognized that we tend to be contentious with fellow people of faith over non-essentials to our faith. We turn our opinions about the faith into imaginary hoops and ask people to jump through them. Now, this isn't surprising, though. The Apostle Paul himself predicted this thousands of years ago. Let's look at 1 Timothy 1, verse 3 through 6. This is Timothy talking to his, uh, his apprentice, uh, or Paul talking to his apprentice, Timothy. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these things and have turned to meaningless talk. So here's Paul instructing his student Timothy, maybe 30 years after Jesus's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, to watch out for people who devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. People who were more about their opinions than the things that mattered. People who promoted controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. And guess what? We still have those people at play in our churches and in our communities and our worlds today. And you know what? Sometimes we're those people without realizing it. The American Western Church is the most educated church in the entire Christian church history. More of us have advanced degrees than ever before. More of our ministers have seminary training than ever before. And thanks to the internet, we all have access to theological ideas and concepts and writings that once only divinity students read or cared about. But sadly, all this education doesn't make us better Christians. It doesn't make us more Christ-like. The result is we're educated way beyond our, our, our obedience. We know a lot more than we practice. 
we know a lot more than we obey. We gain more and more knowledge, and we spend less and less time practicing the ways of Jesus. And I think we do this because we've equated spiritual maturity with spiritual knowledge. The more you know, the more spiritually mature you are. The more doctrines that you have in the right box, uh, the more spiritually mature you must be. We have the most educated churches of all time, but I believe one of the least effective churches in the history of the Christian faith. Christianity at its core is very, very simple, too simple for most people. Christianity is about, be about becoming a student of how Jesus lived and loved. What happens is, though, we don't like what that asks of us, and so we make it about something else. We're like, oh, Jesus asked me to love my enemy. He asked me to pray for those who hurt me. He asked me to love my neighbor. And so instead of doing those things, those are too simple, we try to make it about something else. We try to find different stuff to make the core message of Christianity. Let me tell you right now, it's a lot easier to research and develop elaborate explanations about some ambiguous passage in scripture than it is to love a difficult neighbor. It's a lot easier to research and develop complicated explanations for ambiguous passages than it is to love your enemy who hurt you or hurt someone you love. But Christianity doesn't ask you to develop complex, ambiguous concepts about, uh, you know, ideas that it doesn't talk a lot about. It asks you to love your neighbor and to love your enemy. Now, did you ever know anybody like this, maybe in school, maybe in college, uh, who kept getting degrees to avoid getting a career started? Anybody? Yeah, maybe you are that person. Um, I knew someone like that in school who just kept getting multiple undergraduate degrees and was working on multiple graduate degrees after that, and they were like, I'm so scared of doing the wrong thing, I'm just going to get more degrees until I figure out what the right thing is. Um, they were scared to take the plunge into the real world and kept delaying with more education, and I think that describes a lot of the Christians in America. Rather than starting to practice the principles of Jesus, we keep gaining more information about things that ultimately don't matter in order to avoid practicing the things that do. So, when I feel the urge to share my opinion, somebody says something on Twitter or on social media or to my face, um, they say something and I have an opinion and I want to disagree, I'm trying to begin to examine my own beliefs and ask myself three questions. And I want to encourage us to ask these same three questions before we share our opinions about something. Does this really matter? This has stopped so many comments that I want to post online. I'm like, does this really matter? I know they're dead wrong on this, but does it really matter? Most of the time, it doesn't. Number two, how much does it really matter? Sometimes if I get past that first one, this second one catches me because I'm like, it does matter. And then I'm like, it really doesn't matter that much. Third question, who does this matter to? Most of the time, it doesn't really matter to the people that I care about. It matters to some stranger, you know, and uh, I have to look and say, you know what? Why am I sharing my opinions on whatever this issue or topic or belief is when it really doesn't matter and it only matters to people who I don't know and I don't know personally? Um, as a kid, my parents started attending a church and uh, they had a Bible quizzing team. Anybody familiar with Bible quizzing? Yeah, <laughs> a couple losers like me out here. Did you guys do it? Yes? Okay. Yeah, you, you were scarred in your childhood like I was. Um, there were these kids who would memorize Bible facts and compete with other churches. Now, you didn't think I was a sports guy, right? 
you say sports words, and I'm like, is that football or soccer or tennis? I don't know. Um, but I'm a Bible quizzing champ. I was an MVP of Bible quizzing. Now, yeah, loser, yeah. That's actually what my parents said, too, as they watched it. So <laughs> They didn't. Now, here's what you would do in Bible quizzing. You would sit on this chair, and there was a butt sensor in the chair. I bet you never thought you'd hear the word butt sensor in his message on Sunday, right? Yeah. It's just full of unexpected things this morning. <laughs> As you... Yeah. I was just going to see if anybody noticed that. Good eye. Um, when you stood up, the butt sensor would activate and a light would go off on a board and they would know you were the first person to stand up so you got to give the answer. So you see the kids in this picture. These kids are really into it. You would lean off your chair as much as you could so you could stand up as quickly as possible so you could get that question in. That's a, they're MVPs, I can tell right there. Those are fellow spirits. Um, so anyways, I quickly realized I have no athletic skill to speak of. I would never win a trophy. I would never have anyone cheer my name at a ball game. Um, the only way I could receive praise and applause as a child was to become the greatest Bible quizzing champion of all time. And so that became my goal. I would memorize long sections of the Bible and do Bible trivia and memorize facts and figures. Also, I could humiliate kids from other churches down the street and win the trophy for knowing more facts than the other church kids did. It made me arrogant, angry, and hollow inside, but I was really good at standing up. And it's cool. <laughs> it may be cool that you know lots of theories about obscure portions of scripture, but it isn't making you like Jesus. Knowing facts doesn't mean you're a better Christian. In fact, sometimes it means you're arrogant instead of Christ-like. Many times religious opinions are a waste of space in our brains. Knowing more doesn't mean we're becoming better. Practicing more of what we know makes us better. Now, occasionally I will get an email or a message on social media to our church, and it'll say something like this. This is a direct quote from an email I received, by the way. I know a lot about the Bible, and I'm looking for a small group where I can share my extensive knowledge with my peers. Do you have anything like that? That was an email I received a year and a half ago. Now, I love Bible studies and small groups. As I said last week, the Bible was designed to be uh, designed by its authors to be read in community, but too often Bible studies become places to gather more information, share our opinions, and avoid living and loving like Jesus taught in our everyday lives. Too often we gather more information to impress people instead of practicing more of the way Jesus told us to love people. Notice what Paul said in this passage, the work of God is accomplished through faith, and the result is love. And then Paul contrasts the opposite of this faith expressed through love. And he doesn't say it's hate. What does he say in verse 6? It's meaningless talk. You either are loving people or you're meaninglessly talking at people. And if I want to just boil it down to the big issue that most of our society has with American Christianity, it's that we don't express love. We express a lot of meaningless talk. We have a lot of opinions. When we should be having a lot of love. We know the right things to say, but we don't practice any of it. We need to deconstruct some of the meaningless words of our faith. 
So often we say things because they sound good or they sound spiritual, but they don't comfort the hurting, they don't help the needy. So as we disentangle our faith, I found myself asking this. Do the scriptures actually say this? Do the scriptures actually say this clearly? Or have I developed this belief on a theory from an ambiguous passage? Have I picked this up because this is the cultural way that people expressed Christianity that I grew up with? Or is this something that Jesus asked of me? Is this a clear core belief of Christianity? Or has Christian tradition taken multiple positions on this topic over the last 2,000 years? Does believing this make me more like Jesus? Does it make me more loving? Or does it just make me more self-righteous and think I'm better than the Christian down the street? If it doesn't make me more like Jesus, I've been trying to make the conscious choice to hold those beliefs looser. Many times I'm still like, my opinion is I'm right about that. But I'm trying to hold it looser and saying, you know what? It doesn't matter if I'm right about that because that's not a core, clear Christian belief. Uh, when I was in seminary, I had a professor who was a staunch dispensationalist. If you don't know what dispensationalism is, don't feel bad. Don't let that big word scare you. In, in theology, we use really big words so that we sound smart. That's just so you don't really see that ministers are just like everybody else. It's a fancy way of saying time periods. In the 50s, uh, some theologians developed this idea that God worked in different ways in different time periods. Usually they divide the time into seven categories. Some dispensationalists use five or six. Regardless, it doesn't matter. Um, they chart God's different goals in each time period. Now, my professor loved this model for seeing the Bible and seeing God, and he just loved it. I mean, he saw his whole Christian faith through dispensationalism. I have friends who see their whole Christian faith through Reformed theology or through different approaches. Regardless, he religiously attempted to get seminary students to become fellow dispensationalists. I remember one time he was explaining this to me, and he's like, it's such a wonderful way of seeing God. It just makes so much sense. He's like, it's so great. It solves all these problems. And uh, he says, it works perfectly, except for this one period right here. The other six work great, but not this period right here. But he's like, we just kind of like gloss over that and keep going because it works perfectly 95% of the time and answers all these questions. And uh, he loved the framework so much, he was ignoring the 5% of the time that it didn't fit. Now, when you're doing a puzzle and you have a puzzle piece that fits 95% of the way and there's 5% of it that doesn't fit, do you force it? I do, because I hate puzzles and I want them to be over. I'm so impatient. And Darby will come along and she's like, what is this piece doing here? I'm like, it almost fits. And she's like, no, it doesn't fit there. If you force it into the wrong place, that means it doesn't go where it should be. You need to find a different piece. You look for a new piece to fit there if it doesn't fully fit. Some of us have shoved pieces that don't fit into our beliefs because we've spent so much time thinking about our theories or ideas and we've become so attached to them, so attached that we're too afraid to admit that they don't fit. So in my own deconstruction, my own disentangling between man's opinions and God's truth, I've started to ask myself, is this an essential element of the faith? Is this about Jesus, about his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension? If not, why am I holding on to it so tightly? Why am I trying to force this into a space it clearly doesn't fit? Even if it fits 95% of the way, 
I'm like, why am I trying to force this? Maybe I need to let it go. I think at the end of everything, when we finally see King Jesus, his question won't be about how much we know. It won't be a theological test. It won't be a theological trick question. It won't be about how much we knew or how much we figured out. His question will be about how well we loved God and we loved others. Remember that's what Jesus said? He's like, the whole law and the prophets, it all hangs on this. Love God, love others. And so I think when we see King Jesus, he's not going to be like, did you figure out whether that was a UFO in that passage in Ezekiel? Did you figure out if that was unicorns or just a bad English translation? Did you figure it out? Here's what he'll say. Did you love me? Did you love your neighbor? Did you love your enemy? And I'll be like, yeah, I went to seminary and I got all this knowledge. I tell you this, I can talk to you all about dispensationalism. And Jesus is going to say, yeah, but can you show me your love? The fruit of the Spirit is love, not knowledge. Many of our opinions of faith are birthed out of fear, not love. The ideas we birth in fear must be deconstructed in love. And each message in this series, we've been ending with a dangerous prayer. Here's our prayer this week. Jesus dismantled the pointless things I have believed. Help me recognize the opinions I have that are more about my preferences than your truth. Teach me not to argue, but teach me to love. You said the Holy Spirit would guide me into all truth. Help me deconstruct the false things I have believed and build my faith on you. We're going to pray in just a minute. And I just ask you to pray this. Pray this quietly to God.